Well, friends, I'm thrilled you joined us in our second week of this sermon series. In fact, as we go through the book of Philippians, I want to remind us that I've been here. I've studied it. I've spent time in prayer and asking God to guide me and guide us. And so I can say to you, greetings from Philippians, knowing that this is a journey. This is an actual place. These are actual people that God invites us to visit. You might recall in our first week, and if you missed it, we'd love for you to go to YouTube. Search for Bel Air Church, subscribe to us while we're there and get caught up on the very kind of unlikely origin story of this early church. This early church in a town called Philippi that started from a ragtag, diverse group of people who all came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And what we're going to do in this 10-week-as-a-whole sermon series is we're, we're not going to fly a plane over it. We're not going to buzz through it on a high-speed train. We're not going to ride a bus and go in and out. What we're going to do is we're going to get out and we're going to walk. We're going to walk the streets of Philippi. We're going to take our time to get in the nooks and crannies, to get off of the beaten paths, to go beyond just the, the familiar verses and go word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this amazing letter that the Apostle Paul wrote while in prison. You know, while Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote four letters to people whom he had visited. Visited not in the midst of vacation, but visited in the midst of being led by the Spirit of God to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so while there in Rome, as he writes those four letters, we believe that this is the last letter that he wrote. And uniquely, the only letter where he's not correcting bad behavior or rebuking bad teaching, he is sending his love, his encouragement, his thanksgiving, his warmth, his joy with the believers in Philippi, whom he had already visited. And so again, as we go through this, it is not just my invitation, but it's actually, it's God's invitation to you not to experience Philippians in a secondhand sort of way. If you remember in the first week, I shared how as a little kid, I you know, briefly got enamored with postcards. And I didn't have to travel to the places. I just love the postcard. You know, greetings from Des Moines or, or Paris or whatever it was. And I remember visiting my grandfather in Silver Springs, Maryland, my mom's dad outside of Washington, D.C. And I had this, this conversation with him, I recall. And I, I shared with him some of these postcards. And he looked at me and he said, that's great, but... It's actually better to go to these places, he said with a smile. And looking back, I realized that not just then with those postcards, but often sometimes in life, we can settle for a secondhand experience of something. We can look at pictures and never go there. We can hear other people's accounts, but never experience it ourselves. We can read stories about people who go on great adventures and get outside their comfort zone, but we never leave the confines of our house. We can't do that in our relationship with God. And yet there's this temptation to rely on me or another pastor or a mentor in your life or a a great Christian author and to rely on their experiences for your faith journey. The invitation from God is for you to go beyond those secondhand accounts, those secondhand experiences, and experience God for yourself. And so, yes, while I'll be your tour guide through this 
this walk through Philippians. As I say to you, greetings from Philippians, from this community of people centered on Jesus, because I've been there in the spirit, praying and studying with God. I long that you would study it with me, that you would walk it with me, that it wouldn't just be during this hour once a week, but you would, you would open up this letter. You would ask the spirit of God to guide you through it that you would go to the greatest guide of all, Jesus Christ, to reveal to you through the Spirit what he has for you. To not just reveal what God did back then in their life, but universally what God wants to do in your life right now. So if you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Of course, when Paul wrote this letter, there was no chapters and verses. Those were added many centuries later for ease of reference. Uh, there was a, a gentleman whom we'll get to in a couple weeks who delivered this handwritten letter. There was a delay in that letter getting to the church in Philippi. Well, again, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But once it arrived in that community, it was read aloud. You see, in the first century, the literacy rates were nothing like the literacy rates of the 21st century. Very few people in that town could even read the handwriting of Paul's letter. And so remarkably, they heard the words before they saw them. A reminder that these words weren't just Paul's words. But we believe and trust and in faith know that Scripture says about this letter, like all the 66 books of the Bible, that every word is breathed by God. All of Scripture is from God's heart. That ultimately God is the divine author, yes, through human hands, but all of it is useful for correction, for teaching, for reproof. And so this series, again, we're going to go word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So let's go on a walk together. With that Bible open, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 8. And again, not flying a plane over. I don't have three points today. We're not going to zip through this real quick. We're not going to do a bus stop to three different thoughts or ideas or principles. We're going to get out. We're going to walk it. So I'll read all of it. And then we're going to start from the beginning. Literally, with your Bibles open, we're just going to walk through the whole thing and allow the Spirit of God to guide us in this time. Let me read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. All right, so imagine those 
followers of Jesus in Philippi are all huddled together. They're all gathered together. News has spread that Paul, who isn't a family member, who isn't a neighbor, he's not a resident of Philippi, he was a man so captivated by the love and gospel of Jesus Christ that he left his hometown, his home area, and he traveled to Philippi. They hadn't spent that many hours with Paul. They hadn't spent that many days with Paul. They didn't celebrate birthdays and go on vacations. They didn't go to high school together. They didn't work in the same company. They didn't have shared likes and shared dislikes. They didn't bond over anything other than this man revealed to them Jesus and their eternity and their lives and their community and their identity and their purpose was changed forever. And so when they hear a letter has come from Paul, they rush together. Many historians and scholars believe that they rushed together to gather at Lydia's home. If you remember from the first week of this sermon series, we saw in Acts chapter 16 that there was a woman named Lydia from a town, an Asian town called Theatra, who now lives in Philippi. She was a dealer in purple cloth. She was wealthy, a high-powered businesswoman, a leader in the community. She was the first follower of Jesus Christ in Philippi. It was her home that the early believers gathered in. It's where Paul and Timothy and Luke gathered in in the first night in Philippi. It's where they gathered in as they were released from jail. It was the center place. It was the, the hospitality hub of the early church. In many ways, it was a lot like Bethany. You've heard me talk about Bethany, the the village, the hometown of Lazarus, of Martha, of Mary. You see, there's certain places where Jesus finds himself most at home. It's not places of religiosity. It's not places of, of prideful arrogance. It's places whom are filled with people whose hearts are open to Jesus. And now as the body of Christ, the early church led by the Spirit has exploded in growth with love and truth and grace and mercy and justice throughout Philippi, Lydia's home, we believe, is that hub. So they've gathered together. And someone stands, perhaps the deliverer of the message, whom we'll get to in a couple weeks, reads out loud the very beginning. Two names, not one, so significant. It says Paul and Timothy. You know, in the first century, it was letters, our modern day Primary mode of communication is email. If you were to open up an email account today and you, you know, send an email, it automatically auto-populates in the from section your email address. And it takes intentionality to, to add somebody else in the from category. Paul chose to do that. Yes, he wrote this letter through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet he was in jail and yet he addresses the, the early church from community to a community. It's not just me, Paul. I'm not the one with the only answers, all the answers. I'm not the main star of the show. No, it's we. 
And it reminds me of the, the ministry of Jesus shared in the Gospels, where Jesus sent people out two by two. He sent them in the communities as a community. What a great reminder that we need one another. A great reminder that, that God does miraculous things through people. I think about when Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I will be there. There's something that happens in community, Christ-centered community. And we need to understand that Paul, writing this letter, knows that. He knows it's not just about him, but he addresses the Philippian community from both Paul and Timothy. Well, who's Timothy? Well, we can read about Timothy in Acts chapter 15 and 16. He was a young man who was open to the gospel, whom Paul began to mentor, who Paul began to disciple. If Paul was the, the wise, sage, older leader, Timothy was the younger, exuberant, passionately open to learning leader. And Paul puts them on the same level playing field. This letter is from us. Paul and Timothy. Servants of Christ Jesus. Likely, like Paul and Timothy, as true as you, there are many true things about us as people. A lot of true things about Paul, a lot of true things about Timothy, a lot of true things about me, a lot of true things about you. But the truest thing about them can be the truest thing about you and me if we were open to it. The truest thing about us is that we are followers of Jesus Christ. As Paul says here, servants of Christ Jesus. That was his primary identity. It was nothing else. It was not his education. It was not a marital status. It was not a socioeconomic status. It was nothing human. It was entirely God-given divine. He says, this is us. It is from us. And who are we? We're servants of Christ Jesus. That is our calling card. That is our resume. That is our authority. That's how we want you to listen to all that we have to say. It is us, Paul and Timothy. And who are we? We are servants of Christ Jesus. Great reminder in this world that there are a lot of things that we can make our identity. What people say about us, what we do, what we own, who we are with. But this wooing invitation from God is for us to see our identity as something greater than that. As adopted children in God's family, ambassadors for Christ, formerly dead, now alive, a new creation in Christ, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people. And Paul reminds the early church, that's not only their identity, Paul and Timothy, that's the identity of the Philippians. Well, who is this written to? You know, as you write a letter to people or as you send an email to people, you know, you can put uh, in the, the two line, you know, a name. You can CC multiple people. Often when we send letters, we send it to one person. And there's this, this thing that I've noticed in culture that when we, you know, address an organization, typically we address the CEO. When we address um, a school, we address the president. If we, if we have something to say to, 
you know, a, a local organization, a nonprofit, we, we might write a letter to the, the chairman of the board. That's often what happens. We ask the question, okay, who's in power and who can I talk to? Whether it's bad or whether it's good. And it's part of human nature, sadly, broken human nature, I believe, that we kind of rank people in order of importance. And historically, the church has fallen into this, unfortunately. And we put, whether it's a, a priest or a senior pastor or a leader, you know, on the, on the highest pedestal of all, and we believe that, that they're the most important one. And what Paul could have done, which he doesn't do, is he could have singled out one leader. He could have singled out Lydia. He could have singled out somebody else. He could have addressed it to the head honcho, whoever that head honcho was in Philippi, to give them a message to send to everybody else, but he doesn't do that. Who does he write it to? Take a look at what Scripture says. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi. This letter is addressed to every single person that has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say to all the believers, he doesn't say to all the people, he doesn't say to all the communities, it's to all the saints. The Greek word is hagion, it literally means holy one. You know, growing up I uh, went to uh, middle school and high school here in Los Angeles and it was a Catholic-based private school. And I learned in school about uh, the saints, as they were referred to, the titles given to them throughout church history. And these were kind of select people throughout church history who have been elevated, who have been venerated, who have been given a kind of a special place in the, you know, the history books of the Catholic Church. And I always felt this like removed, disconnected. It's like, man, they just, they're, they're like on another level. I can never be like them. And it felt like this, this saint status was something that you had to earn, that you had to live up to, that you had to get voted into. It was like, you know, making the Hall of Fame. It was like winning the Oscar. It was like winning a, a James Beard Award. It was like for a very, very small fraction of the population, and none of that is actually biblical because what is biblical is that every single follower of Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you don't have to get voted in. You don't have to earn your way. It's not about a certain amount of votes so you get tallied in. If you have said yes to Jesus, you become by definition a holy one, a saint. But you are not a saint on your own. You're not a saint, you know, regardless of what you do. No, no, it says right here, very clearly, you are a saint in Christ Jesus. Every single word matters in Scripture. Underline all. There's no ranking system. Within the believers, there's no better or worse. No, it's, it's to all. Circle saints, all of them are saints. All of them are holy. But why and how? Circle this, in Christ Jesus. Scripture is crystal clear that we are unholy 
We are sinful. We are wretched. We are enemies of God without Jesus in our life. But when we, with empty hands of faith, in humility, receive Jesus as Lord, as Savior in our life, the perfect record, the most beautiful, sinless, joy-filled, peace-filled, God-glorifying life, and all of that record is now applied to us. As it says in Scripture, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Through Jesus' life, death, ministry, resurrection, and ascension of the right hand of the Father and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, our broken record is put on Christ on the cross and his holy record is given to us. We are only saints in Christ Jesus. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we forget God's promises. Yes, our thought life and yet our behaviors don't honor and glorify God. And yet in Christ, we are holy. But God loves us so much, he doesn't want us to stay in that state, in that thinking, in that behavior that, that ultimately we don't thrive in, nor do we honor God. And so God woos us through his kindness. And scripture says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. To repent is to turn to God. And so Paul, very clearly from community, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus, who am I writing to? To all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Before he says anything, he reminds them of their identity. It is so key. It is so important. As we walk through Philippians, as we go on this journey, that we take this into our everyday life. Everything in our relationship with God has to start with our identity in Christ. And out of the overflow of that identity, that the Spirit of God would reveal to us all the ways in our life that, that are still broken, that are still settling for the shadow thing, the counterfeit thing, the thought life that imprisons us, the addictions that have us enslaved, not to Christ, but to whatever that thing is, the idols that we keep in our hearts, whether we know or don't know. Out of the overflow of that identity, we can be open to the Spirit of God transforming us more and more in the image of Christ. Paul starts with our identity and he goes from there. But with that, all of them being saints, he identifies two roles within the church. And he speaks them out and he says this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. I want to be crystal clear here. He's not calling only the bishops and the deacons saints and then there's everybody else. No, he's saying that you're all saints. And within the sainthood, within that community, the holy community of Christ in Philippi, there are bishops and deacons who play particular set-apart roles within that context. This is to all y'all. The leaders, the followers, one is not more important than the other. One is called to a higher standard, yes, as a leader, but they are all saints in Christ Jesus. What does he have to say? Out of that identity to all those people, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts more letters with that phrase than any other phrase. Grace and peace to you. Perhaps he knew that they needed grace. Perhaps he knew that they needed peace. You see, they were living within Philippi, this large metropolitan area, a Roman colony that worshipped Roman gods. They were living a very countercultural, uh, a very distinctly different identity within a community, not removed as an enclave, but in the midst of the people in the midst of the bustling of the city, in the midst of the neighborhoods, in the midst of the work, they were a community that was called to be a blessing to all the people around them. And likely that was difficult. Likely they received persecution. Likely they were ostracized. You see, at this point, Christianity was not a welcome Religion, And yet at the same time, people were enamored with their love and how they served the poor, how they treated a variety of people different than the rest of the world treated them. They needed grace. They needed peace. But it wasn't a grace that came from Paul. It wasn't a peace that came from Paul. It was a grace and peace that came alone from Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Prince of Peace and the God of grace and glory. That's how he starts this letter reminds them of uh, their identity. He ministers to them with that welcome. And then he reveals something so surprising. Verse three, he says, I thank my God. And I love that. He doesn't say just, I thank the God. He doesn't say, I thank our God. He says, I thank my God. There is this intimacy that the apostle Paul has with his maker, with his creator. I think I have gratitude. I'm filled with just overflowing thanksgiving that isn't just destinationless. It's not something that I just hold as a feeling. It's not just a warmth of gratitude that, you know, washes over my being. No, no, no. I direct my thanksgiving to my God. I give my thanks to my God every time. Every time I remember you, You've heard me say before that the word remember outnumbers the word believe in Scripture five times to one. The word remember outnumbers the word trust two to one. It seems like we as human beings are most whole when we remember who God is and who we are. We live in a world where I believe God's enemy, Satan, wants us to forget. To forget God, to forget who God says we are. But also, in this case, God's enemy wants us to forget who we are in community with. You've heard the phrase, out of sight, out of mind. It is so easy in our busy, 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 busy culture to just be present with those that are in front of us and to to forget about, to lose thought of people who aren't in our immediate sight. They can be in the next room. They can be next door. They can be in the next cubicle. They can be the next block down the road. They can be in another worship service in the same church. And often, sadly, we are forgetful of people that God has called us to be in community with when Satan leaves us to be a out-of-sight, out-of-mind sort of people. But Paul is intentional in remembering, bringing to the forefront of his mind these people 
whom at this point we believe he'd only visited twice. I mean, think about all the places you've been in your life. How often do you think about people you visited only twice in your entire life? People who you haven't grown up with, people whom aren't your immediate family, people whom you haven't worked with, people you haven't gone to school with, people who just for whatever reason you happen to meet on a, on a journey. How often do you think about them? Well, for Paul, it says here he was constantly remembering them. And as he remembered them, he prayed and every time he prayed and remembering them, he thanked God, his God, for them. He's in jail. Of all the things he can be thinking about while he's in jail, how do I get out of here? How much time do I have left? What am I going to do when I get out? He is spending that time thinking about, remembering the sweetness, the richness, the joy of this community. This is supernatural. This is not natural. This is not rational. This is what happens when God grabs a hold, not just of a single heart, but many hearts that form a community. It transcends space, it transcends time, and you need to know that there is this united experience that Paul is having while he is physically distant. He's in Rome, they're in Philippi. He's in jail, they're in a home. They're in two physically different proximity places. And yet through the power of the Spirit, they are united as one. Even the time that it takes for the words that God wrote through the Apostle Paul to reach the ears of all the saints in Philippi, it took time. I do believe that God longs for us to to yearn for, to long for, in-person community. God values it so much that God came in the flesh. And yet we also need to know two truths here, that when we are physically apart, we can still be united in spirit. And so Paul, he had been with them in person, but while he was apart, he was still thinking about them. He was still praying. He still longed to communicate with them. This is so critical for us. I want you to know as Bel Air Church, I am physically here in our sanctuary in Los Angeles. I have no idea where you are. I can't see you with my eyes. Neither could Paul when he wrote that letter to the saints in Philippi. There's many of you whom I've gotten to know in person. I can picture your faces. I can hear your laugh. I can recall and bring to mind stories that you've shared with me. Amazing experiences that we've had together as we've served the Lord together. And as I remember you, wherever you are right now, I thank God for you, like Paul did for them. But at the same time, when Paul wrote that letter to the saints in Philippi, likely he knew that that community had grown. He couldn't remember all of them by their face. He didn't know all of them by their name. It didn't matter. God knew their name. God knew their faces. God knew them more intimately than Paul could ever know them. And so he sent God's love. He sent God's truth to them. And it took time to reach them. Yes, I'm, I'm sharing this in this moment, in this present tense moment. I have no idea when this will hit your ears. That's the power of what God can do when we don't settle for 
things can only happen when we're just together at the same moment at the same time. No, God is a God outside of space and time. And so like them in the first century, we're longing to be in the 21st century a church that highly values being together physically. That's the best. But in between, when we gather together physically, we must stay connected in the spirit. And the technology of the day in the first century was the written word. It was letters. The technology of the today is, is vast and varied. Let's stay connected together. Like they were so connected together. Let's go on as we walk through Philippians. He says, I'm constantly praying. Constantly praying. I'm constantly breathing. I'm constantly... Uh, alive. Uh, you know, I, I think about the things that I'm constantly doing, sadly. Unfortunately, I'm not yet at a place where I'm constantly praying. Paul, we see it in a variety of places throughout Scripture in his letters. He is constantly praying. This man is constantly in dialogue with God. And I don't believe that he is like not talking to other people, just kind of huddled together praying, antisocial. No, he had somehow an ability through the Spirit that even when he was having a conversation with someone face-to-face, -face, that part of his heart, part of his mind was in dialogue with God. I know people like this who say to me that, that, that whatever they're doing, they're, they're thanking God. And it's not long, verbose, recited prayers that they're praying from memory. No, they're just, God, thank you. God, give me wisdom in this moment. God, what do you want me to do with this information? God, remind me that this is someone made in your image. This is what they tell me of how they are constantly praying to God, even in the midst of their daily life. I don't know what it was like for Paul, but he says to the saints in Philippi that he is constantly praying with joy. In every one of my prayers for all of you, Paul talks about joy more in this letter than any other of his letters. There is this thing that transcends circumstances. It is far deeper than happiness. It is a joy that comes from the Lord. Every time he thinks about it, every time he remembers, every time with gratitude he prays to his God. Why? Verse 5. Because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. You might remember from the first week, we talked about the first day. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16, that first day where Paul went to the river. There was a group of women praying. And Paul, speaking to the mind of Lydia, he appealed to her intellect. She was captivated by his words. Through those words being opened up, the Lord opened up her heart. And on that first day, she came to faith in Jesus. As Paul is writing to all the saints in Philippi, he is remembering how it all started. Outside of the normal pattern of how he planted churches in all the different villages and cities, it started with Lydia. And then that young girl who was demonically possessed. And then the jailer. The most unlikely people of all, upper class, lower class, middle class, female, male, in control, out of control, at peace, oppressed, violent. Most unlikely people of all, God used Paul and Timothy and Luke as an instrument to lead them to Jesus, who gave them a new identity, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. That was the first day. 
How remarkable that there was this starting point, that the seeds of the glory of God were planted in that community and it has grown and grown and grown and grown far beyond what Paul could even comprehend. And all of that is them sharing in the gospel. That's what's united them. That's what's brought them together. It's not that they prefer the same style of preaching or the same type of music that they happen to, you know, show up at the same place at the same time. And none of that. No, they shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That was the uniting thread that bound them together. That's why Paul's giving thanks. But he goes on. He knows that they, like him, are people in process. Elsewhere, in another letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he says, gosh, you know, the things, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I still do. This wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He acknowledges, even as a believer, even as a follower of Jesus, even as somebody who has been saved from the penalty of sin, sin still has power in his life. And he realizes that, yes, he's saved. Yes, God looks at him in Jesus Christ and says, you are holy, you are a saint. And yet he knows that his thought life, his actions, don't line up with God's best for his life. And he says, who will save me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, it is Jesus Christ. He knew that the Holy Spirit transforms you and it takes time to transform your thoughts, to transform your values, to transform your behavior, to transform your response to things, to transform your perspective of things, to transform your humility, to, to wipe away your pride and your need to be in control, your need to always be right. The Holy Spirit transforms you so that you would be more and more like Jesus Christ. He knew that in his own life, and he wanted to remind the saints in Philippi the same. And this is what he says. This is what I call a, a refrigerator magnet verse, a coffee mug verse, a bumper sticker verse, an embroidered pillow verse. You know, those verses that are famous or known by so many people that kind of make it as this statement to be remembered wherever it might be. This is the first one that many, many people know. This is often a destination that many people go to in Philippians, but we've been walking Step by step, now we're finally here. Philippians 1, 6. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. He starts off, he uses this Greek language, again, the language of the New Testament. We've translated in the English of I am confident. This word in the Greek is so expansive. It leaves no room for doubt. It leaves no room for estimation. There's no slight chance of probability. No, this is with absolute confidence, as if it's already been done. Well, what is this thing that he's so confident about? He says this, that the one, not Paul, not Timothy, not any other person, not the person who is hearing this letter, but the one, God the Father, the God the Father who began a good work among you. God has started something, and I'm confident of this, that he will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. You know, living in Los Angeles, there's a lot of construction, a lot of construction, houses, commercial buildings, restaurants, parks, you know, all over. We see, we see work start and it takes time. And often there's a day 
where we finally see the work finished, where people move into the home, where a company moves in, where a restaurant finally has its grand opening, where a park can finally welcome visitors, but also in Los Angeles, and I know it's true in other cities, other places around the globe, sometimes construction starts and it never finishes. Ever since I've been in my role here at Bel Air Church as a senior pastor, I started in 2014, I can look out my office overlooking the San Fernando Valley. We're up on beautiful Mulholland Drive as I look out across the, the ridges of hills, which is the town of Encino, out over the San Fernando Valley, there is this massive, massive, massive home that was started, who knows when, but it's never been completed. In fact, there has never been a day since I've been in my role looking out that window up on campus that I've actually seen it worked on. Never seen people there. Never seen a crane. Never seen bulldozers. Never seen anybody there. It is this thing that has been abandoned. It was started. There was dreams for it. There was a plan for it. And yet it was abandoned. Sadly, many people think that that is true in their spiritual life. Maybe they came to Christ as a kid. Maybe as an adult, they, they accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But for whatever reason, experiences, dreams that never were fulfilled, prayers that were never answered. Sometimes people, and I, and I hear this often in pastoral counseling, letters that people send in, that sometimes people feel like God has abandoned them, that they are a job site that's been walked away from by the owner. And the Apostle Paul told them, and you've got to hear from God's heart to you this truth, that there is a confidence. There is this truth that is beyond a shadow of a doubt that if God started that good work in you, he's going to finish it. He's going to carry it on to completion. He's not going to fully finish it, the Apostle Paul says, until the day of Jesus Christ. What day is that? It's the day when Jesus returns, when he establishes ultimately his reign and rule here. The kingdom of God here on earth, there is this reality that we are a people in process. We're saved, yes, from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin will continue to have power in our life prayerfully less and less and less and less as we submit our lives to Christ, as we repent from our sin, as we spend time immersed in God's word, delighting in God so that he would give us the desires of our heart, as the psalmist says. But ultimately, we're not going to fully arrive saved from the, the power of sin until we're in God's presence, which ultimately will be saved forever from the presence of sin as well. I need that reminder. I think you need that reminder. The Philippians needed that reminder. You know, when they, they dropped the ball in community with one another, when they made mistakes with one another, when there were many reasons where they could have parted fellowship with one another, when they could have said, you know, I just, I'm going to go find somewhere else. This is not working for me. Paul appealed to their brokenness. Yes, their brokenness. He says, I want you to know that God will never abandon you. God started something among you, individually and collectively, and he's going to carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hang on. Be patient with one another. Forgive one another. Speak the truth in love to one another. 
Bring your lives before God's word and measure it against God's best for your life. But know that if God has started a good work, stick it out. Keep showing up. Keep loving. Keep being patient. Keep forgiving. Keep saying, I'm sorry. Because there's a destination where God's finished work will be enjoyed by all. In this section, he wraps up and says this, It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Let me say this. How I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. This is the same Apostle Paul who before he gave his life to Christ was a zealous Pharisee who was so enamored with the law, doing what was right, avoiding what was wrong, that when he first heard about the first followers of Jesus, he was enraged. These people, they don't live up to the law. They don't live up to the standard. Grace, what is that? All are brought in. What is that? And he was so enraged and filled with righteous, religious, hateful anger that he, he sought to destroy the first followers of Christ. He presided over the stoning of Stephen. He went to the leaders, the chief high priests, and asked that he could be given authority to capture and ultimately kill the first followers of Jesus. This man's heart was so transformed that now he is longing, yearning with intimacy and warmth and love to the very people he formerly persecuted. This is the power of the gospel. This rough and tumble guy who was beaten, who was imprisoned, who was shipwrecked, who went without food, who knew what it was like to have plenty and who knew what it was like to have nothing. This man's heart was so melted with love. Why? Listen to this. He was melted with the compassion of Jesus Christ. He had experienced God's love for him. He'd experienced God's grace for him. He'd experienced God's faithful presence He'd experienced God's passionate pursuit of him and filled with that, out of the overflow of that, it extended to all the saints in Philippi. What an amazing start to this letter and to our journey through Philippians. An unlikely group of people, remarkable things that we can see God was doing for them. But my prayer as we go through this journey is that God would do a remarkable work in us. I'll see you next week. We're going to continue on worshiping, but I want you to know that we've had an opportunity this week to spend more time in Philippians. So would you read this passage? Would you pray, God, reveal what you would have for me. Spirit of God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to change? What do you want me to believe that is true about myself? I'll let the Spirit of God do that work far better than I could ever do. So let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you called not only Paul and Luke and Timothy, not only Lydia and that young girl and the jailer, but all the saints, along with the bishops and deacons in Philippi. You've given us this invitation to, to enter into that world filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with love, even in the midst of brokenness. Help us to see what you would have us to see. 
May you transform us more and more into your image, Jesus, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen.